Happy Women's History Month. Today, we're talking herstory with a true OG in the cannabis women's movement. Tell me, boy, you make me so bored. You need to walk the other way. I tell you once more. Welcome back to Women Leading in Cannabis, where we go deep and get real with the pioneering women shaping today's cannabis industry. You can find us on PodConnects Network, on iTunes, Spotify, and Pandora. If you like what you hear, subscribe to Women Leading in Cannabis. I'm your host, Kira Reed. I'm here today with Sabrina Fendrick, CEO of Essentia Endeavors. Welcome to the show, Sabrina. Hi, thanks for having me. Sabrina is a creative, solutions-driven public affairs executive with nearly 15 years of experience at the intersection of cannabis policy, corporate impact, and ESG, and social justice advocacy. Sabrina has spent her entire adult life articulating complex intersectional cannabis policy issues for the public and lawmakers. In 2021, Sabrina founded and became CEO of Essentia Endeavors to help businesses amplify their brands with social and environmental impact strategies. Before her launch, she was Chief Public Affairs Officer for Berkeley Patients Group, the nation's oldest dispensary. She served as chair of the California Cannabis Industry Association Retail Committee from 2017 to 2019 and was a member of the United Cannabis Business Association Legislative Committee from 2019 to 2021. She also spent several years as an active member of the National Cannabis Industry Association Policy Council. And Sabrina began her career in 2008 at the Washington, D.C.-based National Normal. From 2008 to 2015, she served in many roles, including chapter coordinator. She was also director of women's outreach, where she created the Normal Women's Alliance, the first nationwide woman-focused cannabis program, and later became a founding advisor for Women Grow. What an honor to have you here today, Sabrina. Oh, yeah. It's great to be here in celebration of Women's History Month. All right. Well, take us back to the beginning of your nearly 15 years in the cannabis industry. How did you find your way to normal and what opportunity did you see way back then for women in cannabis? Um, Well, my story is um, started like a lot of other people's stories did where I had uh, an experience with the criminal justice system in college and I got busted for possessing some marijuana in Virginia, which is where I went to school. And it really started to intrigue me about why cannabis was um, illegal in the first place. You know, there were a lot of sanctions that came with that. You know, that whole experience just really frustrated me. And I ended up writing my senior thesis in college. I was studying communications and political science. And so I decided to write my thesis on the evolution of reefer madness propaganda from 1937 when it first became illegal up till 2007, which is when I graduated college. 
Yeah. And it was fascinating um, just learning about how, you know, each sort of iteration of reefer madness and how it changed throughout the decade, sort of as the public started to see their their arguments as, as sort of extreme and un, not believable. Uh, but the policy stayed the same, but the reasons to keep illegal changed. So, you know, I learned so much through that experience about all the, the harms that cannabis prohibition and the drug war at large has has caused and, and how it's destroyed communities and disproportionately impacted people of color and um, just every really sad, uh, devastating consequence of marijuana prohibition. And so I decided that I, as my dream job, would I said in college was to work for normal one day. Um, I didn't think it was actually going to be possible, but it was something I really wanted to do. And I moved home. I grew up in Arlington, Virginia, um, which is right across the river from Washington, D.C. And when I moved home from college, I saw that um, the Marijuana Policy Project was hiring people to stuff envelopes. And so I, I went and uh, started stuffing envelopes. And then I saw one day that Normal was hiring for chapter outreach coordinator and another position. And I applied and I didn't get either of those positions, but they created a new position for me, which was executive assistant to the executive director. And um, yeah, got hired and started in May of 2008. And so, you know, I, the what got me there was just wanting to join this crusade. I started to find this community of people that all believed and felt as strongly as I did about the injustices of cannabis laws and cannabis prohibition everywhere. And, and, you know, especially I didn't even talk about the whole medical cannabis and, and patients and dealing with that side of things. My initial experience was in the criminal justice aspect of it. But as I, I, you know, spent all my almost seven years at national normal, I've just learned, I mean, the, the whole cannabis as a subject is, is so complicated on it, in its own right, that um, you know every little issue and, and nuanced piece of advocacy has a very important place in the narrative, even today. But it's changing, obviously. So, how has the industry changed over the last fifteen years, from your perspective, being a woman in the industry and the industry as a whole? I mean, there's the obvious, right? Adult use in numerous states. There are, uh, the stigma has changed from the consumer perspective, but in terms of the culture of cannabis, what have you seen change in the culture as the industry has grown over time and where do you see it going? Well, as the culture, uh, I could give an example. I, I started around the same times that, the same time that Weed Maps was founded at that time. And there was also listings in high times of, you know, very few cooperatives in California were actually advertising themselves because there were all of there were constant raids. Um, but the Clinton administration, uh, the Bush administration, there were just uh, it was not um, it was not an above ground marketed kind of industry at that time. And so it was it was interesting to watch because it would slowly grow and they would get more and more people on board. I think once the the first coal memo came out addressing the medical marijuana issue and the federal law, they, you know, I started to see more businesses come out and, and be public about what they were doing and who they were serving. But it was, it was very quiet. And most people did not want to be, you know, have any sort of digital footprint 
so that I would say is, is probably the biggest, starkest change that I have seen. We've gone from underground to now like a battle for marketing and battle for market share. Um, and so with that sort of underground community there, it, or that underground marketing or lack of marketing, you know, there was a, a different kind of community, um, you know, everybody, you know, knew each other locally, just sort of how an underground market would work. Although there was always um, a lot of support. Um, everybody would back up other people. It was sort of a sense of you were in it together. And if, you know, there was a, a legal issue with, with a caregiver or a patient or something, I, you know, the community would rally to and defend it. So it was, a, it was birthed out of more of an activist perspective because it was sort of going against the law and status quo, but there was a group of people that knew that this was the right thing to do and people should have access and people shouldn't be getting arrested. And so it was driven more with, with that, that narrative and that tone and that ethos. And now it's sort of, you know, we, we still hear some of the the medicinal aspects of it, but it's, it sort of transitioned more into wellness. And um, that's something that has been, you know, from a female perspective, also very interesting. The products that were out there were sort of very general and I wouldn't say not marketed, but but pal more palatable to, to uh, you know, a male, young male demographic um, than women. And so as, as businesses have evolved and sort of come above ground and, and, people are finding their niche. There's been a, a increase of products that are more appealing to female consumers that, you know, extends beyond just, and not that, that, you know, there's lots of women that um, enjoy dabbing and smoking flour, but, you know, you have your senior women and just, you know, the ones that don't, don't like inhaling any kind of substance. Um, you know, we see more edibles and topicals and um, the marketing, geared towards that uh, has evolved over, I, you know, probably the last six or seven years in, in California, at least. I mean, I can't speak to the rest of the country, but, but every it's different in every state and depending on the evolution of the laws and how, how progressive it is in terms of licensing and regulating, you know, the more regulated it is, I think the more, well, obviously, the more regulated it is, the more above ground people are going to be because they are, you know, they're sanctioned by their local officials to engage. And so now it's about that market share and it's about, um, you know, those profits and staying open. And it's not like they're, they can't be mutually, they're not mutually exclusive. You can still serve a patient population and community and do good and still try to achieve that market share. It's just as, you know, I think the ethos that drives a lot of these businesses is not what it used to be, or it's harder to hang on to that ethos under these new circumstances and the new sort of forces at play. So how do you see the industry has changed in a way that it's impacted women working in the industry? You've mentioned women who are um, consumers, but how is it the industry changed for those women? And what was the ethos that you mentioned that has changed and has, has it, did it start differently for women and has that changed as well? Oh, well, you know, 15 years ago, 
it's hard to say like an industry per se, um, you know, and I have to give a shout out. Like I, I've, I've been in this for 15 years and I know for, for most people that's, that seems like a very long time in the, in this space. And I, I, you know, it definitely is, but there's women that were, were doing this work, you know, decades before I even came on that have been amazing. And it's not a lot of them. I mean, I would say, you know, uh, Debbie Goldsberry is one of the founders of Berkeley Patients Group and Andre Special um, of CBCB. And there, there's a host of women, um, you know, Sue Taylor, that have been there. And I think they've always been very supportive of each other and aware of, um, you know, the struggles of, of being a woman out there when it was so, so male dominated. And it's still male dominated. But I think that um, as the businesses have come above ground and more roles are needed to be filled outside of sort of your basic operational necessities, mechanics. It's, it's created a space for um, new employees, which includes women. Um, I think that what I have seen and is kind of said a lot of um, these women started as activists, you know, went on to be caregivers and, and, um, providers and were running their businesses. And it was, there were, there were a lot of them, but it is, I would say there's not as many executive levels or top levels as there were. I mean, I would say that I, it's a hard question because the, the, the evolution has, has gone like, you know, so fast. It feels like that, um, it's really hard to, to put your, you know, to encapsulate in, in a couple of minutes and because I think it's just so nuanced. I, there, I feel like there was a time in 2015, 2016, 2017, it felt like there were a lot more women executives and women business owners than there are today. I would say there were more at any time in my experience were during those years than before. Um, but the, a lot of some of these women and the ones that I've mentioned, you know, they're still they're still crushing it out there. And I think it's probably gotten a lot harder for those who have been doing this for 20 or 30 years for I mean, men and women, but especially women um, when you're dealing with sort of their mainstream corporate culture that is heavily male dominated, um, sort of patriarchal you know, all the things that, that come with that. Um, I think it's gotten a lot harder as it's the, the laws have gotten more, uh, become clearer and become more regulated because it brings in more investor money, which. And, and why do you think that we've seen the reduction in those women, in the numbers of women in the C-suite and owning businesses in cannabis? I think because it's harder for women to raise money. Most of the people that have money and give money are men and men like to give money to people that look like them and, and can bro out with them. I mean, to be frank, I I don't think I'm telling any secrets here. Um, Mm -hmm. So, so would you think it was easier to start a business in cannabis pre-adult use? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's bittersweet. It was a gray market. So 
there weren't zoning regulations and um, licensing fees. And well, I mean, some cities had taxes, but all of these things, you know, um, property requirements, you know, you're starting to bring in real estate and you're starting to bring in security and you're starting to bring in all of these additional aspects and costs that um, come with regulation. You know, it, yeah, it does become a lot harder when you, you can only, you know, provide this service in a, a specific green zone in a city or a town. And this has happened a lot in, you know, in Humboldt that these growers had been growing on their farms. And then as soon as these regulations kicked in, like some of them weren't even able to continue on their land because of zoning or um, fish and wildlife or, you know, they, it just, you know, inherently comes with regulation. It's it's harder to operate and it becomes more expensive to operate. In your bio, you describe your work as the intersection of cannabis policy, corporate impact, and ESG and social justice advocacy. So first of all, what does ESG mean? And then what does it mean, and all of this, what does this intersection of cannabis policy mean? And how can we incorporate these ideas into our cannabis businesses, and why should we? Sure. Okay. So I'll start with ESG. Um, ESG, I like to say, is like corporate social responsibility uh, quantified non-steroids. It is a, a, one of the fastest growing financial sectors in America, and it stands for environmental, environment, stakeholder, and governance, and corporate governance. And it basically is a way to um, measure a business's impact on um, on its employees, on its environment, and on its surroundings. So it looks at more than just a bottom line, like in traditional corporate business structures, you're, you know, especially for publicly traded companies, like the things you incorporate, you look at the bottom line, and that's what your fiduciary responsibility is. And um, there is a, a growing number of investors that want to look beyond a bottom line and want to see what kind of impact this a business that they might be investing is is having on um, other externalities beyond that. And um, there are, you know, the people have been able to identify risks with that. So if a business is, uh, give an example, so Sunkiss Tuna, I think it's Sunkiss Tuna, it was one of the tuna um, companies was saying that they were dolphin safe and um, they weren't using, doing any practices that, that were hurting uh, sea life. And it turns out that that was not true and they got sued. And so there were there was risk associated with, um, you know, putting out these sort of uh, altruistic statements or, um, you know, saying it's called greenwashing when you're, um, you know, put out statements or trying to develop your, your, uh, corporate image around a sort of altruistic, you know, uh, inclusive ethos. And then when somebody challenges that, and ask that to be backed up with numbers, that's where, uh, you know, the concept of ESG comes in. And um, so it can be some companies focus on, on environmental, that's sort of the biggest one that's becoming, that's actually going to become regulated. I saw the, the SEC is going to require emissions and environmental impact disclosures very soon. And so that's one of the easier ones to quantify when you have like stakeholder impact, um, from a, a corporate company is sort of, you know, their 
their community, their employees, um, you know, what, what are their, do they have any sort of DEI program? Are there, is there equal pay amongst men and women? What's the, um, the family child leave policy, uh, all things like that. You know, what, what sort of nonprofits do they donate to? Is there a, are they a corporate sponsor of, of a local homeless shelter or food bank? Uh, you know, or is it just sort of like, are you just extracting from the environment around you and creating all this trash and all this waste and, and debris and, and bothering the neighbors and everything like that? And then G is the governance is so it's like, are you transparent in your um, your business practices? Does your, you know, or do you have equal representation on your board? All of that sort of um, aspect. Um, you know, are you paying your your fair share? Are you contributing to the community and everything like that? And so um, corporate impact is, is helping businesses. It's sort of like a, a ESG light, if you will. Um, a lot of businesses are not familiar with this. It's a very new concept. Um, but you do have a lot of the larger businesses and other sectors are starting to do ESG programs so that they can be listed in ESG funds that people want to invest in. So like if you have um, an IRA or 401k, they, they have different funds on different, different themes and sectors. So um, one of them could be an ESG. So a sustainable energy and, the, and all of the, the stock that this fund holds is sustainable energy companies. Um, or there's a gender equity and all the, the stocks is with the businesses that either have um, quantifiable gender equity in their um, leadership structure and their employee structure, um, or put out a statement that they intend to pursue that goal. Um, and so, you know, the intersection that I was talking about is sort of bringing that theme and those concepts into the cannabis space. And that's something that I did uh, a lot at Berkeley Patients Group. Uh, it wasn't really, we didn't call it ESG, but looking back, you know, we created a program called Cannabis for Good, and we we're sponsors of the Women's Cancer Resource Center and, um, you know, the uh, the Alameda County Food Bank and the police department and all of these sort of local communities out there um, did participated in food drives. So it's basically um, leveraging the resources and the presence of a business to um, create a, a portfolio of values that uplifts the, their employees and their communities that they're serving. Okay, so let's drill down on this a little bit and let's talk about your work um, with Essentia Endeavors. So first of all, tell us what the name means. And then you started to explain how you help brands amplify their social and environmental impact strategies. But I'd like to know... When it comes to cannabis, because everything you've said so far sounds like it could be applied to pretty much any business in any industry. How is this different with cannabis? And how do you deliver this through Essentia Endeavors? Okay. So uh, to begin, let's see. So Essentia Endeavors, the name came to me a year and a half ago, maybe. And it's Essentia is a root word for Latin root word for essential. And, uh, you know, cannabis 
was at the beginning of the pandemic was designated essential. And I thought it was a, a good play also because the so, you know corporate impact and corporate social responsibility and ESG all address very essential, important problems that um, we as, as humans on this planet today need to identify and find solutions for. And so, and then endeavors also means work. So it's um, important, essential work for an, an important, essential industry. I love it. <laughs> that's great. I think that's one of the best origin stories of a name I've ever heard. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, that's very nice. Yeah. So, um, and then how does this translate into cannabis? So it, for cannabis, you know, one of the things that, um, that really inspired this, this direction for me was the, the waste, the plastic and the packaging waste that this was creating. And if I hadn't wound up in the cannabis space these last 15 years, I would probably be in some sort of environmental, doing environmental work. And it really, it, it, breaks my heart to think that like this, you know, from all the hard work and all the, the important progress we are, we've done that we're adding like exponentially to this plastic waste problem that our country is facing. Um, and the cannabis industry should not be adding to problems that, uh, we should be solutions to problems because that was always my hope for this industry we can show that, you know, you don't have to be business as usual and be an extractive exploitative industry. You can actually be a solution. And so I wanted to um, figure out, and I, and I, you know, I used to, I worked in the policy side too. So I tried to explore certain policy solutions to this. And that was your, you know, to answer your question, how is this um, unique or specific to cannabis? child resistant packaging laws exist in every state. And when you have child resistant packaging laws, you are required to have a certain thickness of plastic of packaging for plastic or, you know, all of these certain like items that generally require hard plastic and things that are not recyclable. Um, and even though you could eat as much flour as you want, nothing would ever happen. A child could, uh, for some reason, for, you know, as uh, outgrowth of, of reefer, reefer madness, uh, everybody, nobody wants to talk about the fact that flour does not need to be in child resistant packaging, which would cut down like half of this problem. But that's not going to be nobody. We're not there yet. The public, no politicians are not there yet. So fine, we'll just, you know, keep doing this um, performative flour, you know, child resistant packaging policy. But we need to either take get this packaging recycled or put to use in another way and or find packaging that maybe can mimic this this you know plastic but is compostable or biodegradable and need to figure out how to make that cost effective because that's the next problem is the because can all cannabis businesses, most of them are very small or, um, you know, everybody's wor working on margin. The cheapest child resistant packaging you can get is this sort of really bad, you know, virgin unrecyclable plastic from China. So not only are you using non-recyclable plastic, you're having it shipped all the way from China. So, you know, talk about emissions and, um, oil and gas waste like it's 
this touches so many different things, but the unique aspect on that end to the environment is the plastic packaging and the, the child resistant requirement from the government, which is probably also going to be required from the federal government. Um, but I, I do continue to, to speak about this and, and hope that if I talk about it enough, maybe we, you know, we'll be able to move past the, the flower child resistant packaging if we can't figure out another more sustainable solution to this problem. Yeah, that would be my my example of a sort of cannabis intersection with Essentia Endeavors. So yeah, and then like the solution, sorry, just to, because to, I, I identified the problem. There's a business out in uh, Napa, I think, that, and I, I just become familiar with it recently, but I, I've, I have heard that they take a lot of this cannabis packaging and turn it into fuel. And so that's one possible solution. I know there's other places that uh, repurpose plastic into um, pavement. There's all kinds of technology. It's just a a matter of um, scaling, collecting this packaging and then scaling the ability to recycle it and and have that be a, a functional business model. But then there's also companies that are making hemp plastic. And so maybe that's a solution. So what essentially endeavors would, would do is to, you know, explore these different options for a business if, if they were looking to cut down on their plastic packaging waste as, um, you know, a, one of their corporate values and, and, and you know, a part of their environmental ethos if they were to have one. Um, but there may be a business that wants to do everything and doesn't know how to, where to start or, um, you know, kind of falls into that, that new to ESG bucket, um, you know, then you would just, we could explore all kinds of different opportunities. You know, obviously the environmental one is, is, is easy to quantify. So, you know, if you're talking, you want something that you can uh, show investors, especially ones that are looking for ESG businesses, um, that's something that can be done, but there's also, um, you know, partnerships with, uh, you know, local shelters or food banks and getting uh, one, a good example that's sort of seen this transition over into a regulatory side are a lot of cities require community impact plans or community support plans in their licensing applications, which is sort of, uh, you know, those sorts of, programs are what a stakeholder, um, the S and the ESG, you know, would be, would fall under that bucket where, you know, your pay your employees to volunteer for a certain number of hours um, at a nonprofit, either that you partner with or of their choosing, you know, or you, you could let the employees pick what their nonprofit's going to be and donate a portion of, of sales to that. There's, there's just so many things that that can be done. So it would depend on like the size of the business, the the amount of, of resources and commitment they're willing to put into it, what they're trying to achieve. But it can be it can be big. It can be like done on a, a huge scale, or it can just be small and incremental. But I think this is a very important direction to go in for anybody that's looking to sell their business or try to go public. Um, you know, millennials and Gen Zers vote with their dollars and um, there's about to be the largest transfer of wealth in the history of the world from 
you know, baby boomers to millennials and Gen Zers and those investors, they're going to be looking for businesses that um, are are engaging in these uh, outreach stakeholder practices. So you've led and participated in numerous policy-related committees and organizations. And, you know, we're talking about a lot of really important work here, and especially this one around cannabis packaging. And I did not realize this conversation had not reached me yet about flour. So you know, we have this very tangible issue right now where cannabis should be doing better. We should not be contributing to the amount of plastic pollution on the planet. So can you kind of from a high level, I mean, we could definitely spend an entire um, series of podcasts on what it takes to change or impact policy. But when we're talking about, let's just take this packaging issue, right? What does it really take to change or impact cannabis policy? And let's take it around this specific issue so we can give it something tangible. You have a lot of experience doing this. So for anyone who's new to the industry or new to wanting to become active in the, their industry and you know, work to change policy, this is one that we can all understand and relate to. How does that happen? How, does, how do we go about impacting that? What does it take to create that change? And then kind of as to tie it up, do you think that we actually have a shot at realizing the cannabis industry that so many legacy operators and women and people of color are fighting for because it's all going to happen at that policy level? Yeah. Okay. So to answer your first question, what does it take to change policy around packaging? I think, uh, you know, to, to be realistic about it, you have to take into consideration the, the politicians and who their constituencies are and who are their contributors are. And then you, you also have to see where the, the benefit to the business from a business perspective can be like, how can we and then how politically realistic is it to get politicians? This is kind of where I see it. I mean, I think it is going to be a long time before we can get politicians to be like, oh, yeah, we should totally get rid of child-resistant packaging for flour. I think it's just it would be too easy for opponents. I don't think the public's ready for it. And I don't think politicians would be ready for it. But I do think that we all know that cannabis is one of the highest taxed commodities and and we're not even talking about federally taxed yet um, but from a state level I think that um, one the only realistic solution that I can come up with at this point and um, you know I haven't like done a soup like complete nuanced deep dive but the one that makes the most political sense the most like economic sense um, and, and meets the goals for everybody is tax incentives for sustainable practices for businesses and going at it from that angle. So if you're using, um, because taxes is already so high, if it becomes cost effective to um, use hemp plastic or compostable child resistant packaging, I just, I'm not sure where the people are ready to get rid of child resistant packaging yet. I mean, it, it was 
Although, you know, things have gone a lot quicker than I expected. I did not, you know, think we would be here this quickly. Well, maybe now in 2022, but back in five years ago, God, time really does fly. I mean, maybe, I mean, maybe they are, but, but today, not today. They're not ready today. So we need to talk about um, how to get around that, how to make it cost effective for businesses and you know, pretty much every politician, well, for the, I don't want to say pretty much, but for the most part, most politicians acknowledge that, you know, climate change is a problem. We need to do something to stop waste. We need to create these climate action goals and finding ways to fit cannabis into those climate action goals by providing incentives for those businesses to be able to afford to uh, pursue those climate goals and, and achieve the, the, New environmental carbon and waste neutrality that um, we all need to see. So that would be the the actual policy proposal I would fight for. And then in order to get that, the cannabis industry and executives um, can't do this alone. I think there needs to be a massive coalition building effort. We need to get environmentalists, the all the environmental lobby on board. We need to get any any other stakeholder that's impacted by plastic waste uh, and whatever their their stakeholder group is, um, get those folks on board. Any community leaders and politicians, high profile folks that um, can appreciate the importance of this plastic crisis and just kind of create that wave to lift this issue all the way up and get the intention of the lawmakers. I think that you know, aside from ballot measures, uh, not, most or all cannabis policy that's occurred has had to occur in conjunction with some sort of coalition that exists outside the industry. It's just a matter of, of shared issues, interests and issues. Yeah. And will be, we be able to realize the dream? God, I hope so. Um, <laughs> I think that there's hope. Um, you know, I think we're talking about uh, um, clearing records and, you know, for for all the faults that that the equity licenses and programs and, and those have created, I think that intention and that vision and that goal that is staying alive, that dream is staying alive. Um, and so I think, you know, th- they have to figure out the the kinks in that area and make it more um, inclusive and impactful to, to larger communities. Um, and, you know, I, I think they're going to get there, but I feel like that gives me hope that the dream is still alive and that cannabis can coexist with um, doing good in the world and, and be a part of that. Um, but I, I don't think it's going to be, easy. I think the more and more people are coming into this industry with, uh, that are used to the way that, you know, corporate America is and has been, and they bring those practices into this industry. And, um, I think it, it, it definitely requires a active conscious effort to remember the importance of, of striving for those, you know, most important foundational goals of, of equity and sustainability and, and lifting 
up of communities and and patients and and ever everybody impacted and and maybe not directly impacted but um, benefited from in some way. So you know, I, I think we'll see when when we see what happens on the federal level. That's really when it's gonna start to materialize. Right now, we're sort of in the experimental different states doing different things stage. You know, it, it's, I, I certainly hope that we'll be able to realize the dream. But I think that the folks that are both coming into this are coming into this for the right reasons and, and trying to uh, create a, a community and an industry that is unlike anyone we've seen before and remembers those, the compass and the goals and, and the people and the, the, the compassion and the, the activism that brought the industry to where it is today. So we're running low on time, but I, I have to ask you briefly, what are you most concerned about and what are you most excited about federal legalization? Poof. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, what am I asking? I'm most excited about the end to criminalization. Well, what I hope will be the end to criminalization um, on a broad scale, and that everybody will be able to have access to and to. Well, I'm most looking forward to interstate commerce. As someone who just left California for Colorado, I'm very much looking forward to interstate commerce. Um, <laughs> But I, um, well, I guess I'm scared that, that it'll lose its original ethos that, that sort of birthed the cannabis industry, that it'll just become another corporate commoditized, commoditized uh, product that is doing nothing to benefit society or the community and is um, more of a... Yeah, I guess that would that would be my biggest fear is that it just loses the essence of cannabis and what it started as the community. Yeah, loses yeah loses the essence of 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 what is cannabis and what brought me to cannabis. Um, you know, and what's kept me in cannabis is is this ability to sort of create something from the ground up and something different because the way that corporate America has been, has been awful. And we're, we're seeing it now. We're still dealing with it. We're trying to keep that out. And it's just this fight between, um, that and, and what so many found appealing and about cannabis. And, you know, I think it's just this constant back and forth, but if there can be a coexistence between the two, I think that would be the best possible outcome. Amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, where can women learn more about you and Essentia? Uh, well, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Sabrina Fendrick. Uh, I, there's a link to my Essentia page on there. I'm also on Facebook. I think s facebook.com slash s Fendrick. And yeah, so that's where you can learn more about me. I mean, I have an Instagram account, Sib Sabrina, which is you know, it's not as much cannabis related, but if you're interested in my posts, feel free to follow that too. <laughs> um, but yeah, for my Essentia endeavors, definitely LinkedIn, Facebook, and feel free to email me as well if, if anyone wants to, to reach out. Uh, 
privately, Sabrina at EssentiaEndeavors.com. And I have a website coming soon. Well, thank you so much, Sabrina, for your time and for sharing your journey with us today and for being a WEIC Woman member. Ladies, thank you for tuning in. If you haven't yet joined the Women Employed in Cannabis community, go to WEICwoman.com. There you'll find all the details on membership for women working in cannabis. WEIC is a community that provides networking, mentoring, and support to women working in cannabis in the U.S., Canada, and around the world where there's an interest in cannabis legalization. We welcome women who are currently working in the industry or curious about taking a leap. Consider becoming a WEIC woman member or WEIC business member for benefits and access across the network. And join us again for another conversation with women leading in cannabis. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey friends, I'm Brandon And I'm Saba. And we are your host of the Cannabis Hangout Podcast, an educational platform to connect with the cannabis community and share personal stories while breaking the stigma of marijuana. Join us every Sunday at 7 p.m. to gain valuable insight with different perspectives from industry leaders, growers, and medical marijuana patients. This is a place to learn so much from different angles in the cannabis industry. So tune in while, while we, we break, break it all down. down.